Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in chapter 5 of the book of John. I'm going to cover verses 30 through 47 to finish up the chapter. I call this section Witnesses to Jesus. As you will see as we go through the exposition of this passage, the context here is John chapter 5 where Jesus has just healed an invalid who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He healed him on the Sabbath, got the Pharisees all upset with him, and they're on his case. Now in the previous audio, verses 24 through 29, Jesus talked about spiritual and physical resurrection as he was talking to the Pharisees. And so I broke that out and made a special topic of that. And this whole chapter, by the way, is an interlude in Jesus' great Galilean ministry. John leaves out most of all the events of Jesus that Jesus was doing up in Galilee. But Jesus took a trip down to Jerusalem in the midst of that Galilean ministry to go to a festival, probably the Passover. We're not sure. And he had this healing incident. The healing was interesting, but more interesting than that is... John chapter 5, which basically could be summarized by saying it's where Jesus tells everybody that he and the Father are one. It's all about the, the divinity of Jesus. So let's start now. with, And there are no parallel passages, by the way, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So we're going to stay right here in John 5, verses 30 through 47. We start with verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Jesus, I, Jesus, can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, when Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own, this reflects what he said in several verses previously in John 5, verse 19. Then Jesus replied, I assured you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. So we see that the will of the Father and the will of the Son are exactly in tune. Jesus doesn't do anything on his own. The wills of the Father and the Son are simpatico. This is a good example for us, too. If Jesus is our human exemplar as the God-man, and we want to follow his example, we should try to do as much as possible the will of the Father. We should not try to do things on our own will, in our own desires. Now, John Gill points out that here Jesus switches from the third person to the first person. He says, I can do nothing on my own. Previously, he was just talking in the third person as the Son of Man. For example, I think it was in verse 27, he says this, and he has granted him the right to pass judgment. He, the Father, has granted him, Jesus, the right to pass judgment. Third person, him, because he is the Son of Man. But now Jesus is bringing it to them straight. Look, guys, look, Pharisees, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. This idea that I just mentioned, by the way, that we should use Jesus as our example of trying to follow the will of the Father perfectly is not just my idea. Adam Clark pointed that out in his commentary. I think it's a, it's a key point. John 5, verses 31 through 34. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is valid. You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. I don't receive man's testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, this passage requires a little bit of unpacking because it doesn't make uh, immediate sense as you read it. So let's start with verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Now remember, this whole passage is going to be about testimonies, testimonies. 
testimonies to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there are five testimonies in this passage, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Number one, testimony number one, that of John the Baptist. Number two, the works of Jesus testify to Jesus. Number three, God the Father testifies to Jesus. Number four, the Scriptures testify to Jesus. And number five, Moses testifies to Jesus. That's in verses 33, 36, 37, 39, and 46. As we go through, we'll see this, these testimonies. Now, Jesus is talking about testimonies, but he says, first of all, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Why is it not valid? Well, there's two reasons. One, Jewish law said you can't testify about yourself. That's not the Old Testament law. That's the rabbinic law, that's according to John Gill. And then, of course, according to Deuteronomy 19.15, it takes more than one witness to testify about something. It takes two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus is stating a valid point that, hey, I can't testify about myself. But then he's going to start pointing out there's a lot of other testimonies. I got five other testimonies. So one testimony, sure, is not enough, but I got five others, and you guys ought to believe, but you don't. So you are therefore culpable. But he starts out in verse 31, there is another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony he gives about me is valid. Now the problem is we don't know who this another is. There's two options. It could be God the Father. The Holman Christian Study Bible apparently thinks it's God the Father because they capitalize another, and of course capitals are not in the Greek, so that's a translator's interpretation. They assume it's God the Father. The NIV Study Bible takes that to be God the Father also. John Gill denies it. John Gill says it's John the Baptist, and I think that Gill might be right here because the very next verse, Jesus talks about John the Baptist. He says, you have sent messages to John, and he has testified to the truth talking about John the Baptist. That's a close question. But whether it's God the Father or John the Baptist, it doesn't matter because both of them were testimonies to Jesus. And Jesus says, I know that the testimony that he, God the Father, or John the Baptist gives about me is valid. In other words, I know it even if you guys are too spiritually obtuse not to know it. Now when Jesus says in verse 33, you have sent messengers to John and he has testified to the truth, he is mentioning the commission that the Sanhedrin sent, the Jews from Jerusalem sent to John when he was in the Baptist, John, John the Baptist when he was in the desert testifying about Jesus. They sent a commission to find out who he was, and, and that commission had priests and Levites in it, Pharisees too, if I recall. And they went to him and said, Who are you? This is John 1.19. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? And what Jesus is saying, Look, you've already investigated and you find out a testimony to who the Messiah is, namely me, but you didn't listen to him. Well, the implication, he didn't say you didn't listen to him, but the implication is you didn't listen to him. So I've got, besides my witness, I've got another witness, John the Baptist, and perhaps God the Father, depending on how you interpret verse 32. So that's at least one, perhaps two witnesses. And then he says in verse 34, he says, I don't receive man's testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, what he's saying is, when he says, I don't receive man's testimony, Adam Clark says, you need, to, you need to add only at the end to interpret it. I don't receive man's testimony only. I don't merely receive man's testimony. Of course he received man's testimony. He just said he received John the Baptist's testimony. But what he's saying is, I don't just rely on man's testimony 
but I'm but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. So what he's saying is, I don't need John the Baptist's testimony, but I'm telling you John the Baptist's testimony so that it might help you believe that I am the Messiah, that you might be saved and not damned. I'm trying to help you out, Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm trying to point out all the evidence that exists that I am the Messiah. Now, then I've been studying Bible points out that. John's testimony was not as important as the testimony of the Father when he says, I don't receive man's testimony. I don't need John the Baptist's testimony. The Father's testimony is is greater because of all the works that he gave me to do, all the miracles that I'm doing because of the Father. So the Father's testimony is more important, but still, John the Baptist's testimony was important too. And so he says, I'm giving you this testimony so that you may be saved, even though John the Baptist's testimony is not as good as God the Father's testimony. So now we go to verse 35, the verses 35 and 36. John was a burning and shining lamp, and for a time you were willing to enjoy his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. And there you see the greater testimony from the Father. And even if the another, the testimony of the another in the previous verse, in verse 32, does not refer to the Father. Here Jesus explicitly refers to the Father in verse 36. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish as a testimony from the Father. Okay, verse 35. John was a burning and shining light. Now, the burning may refer to John the Baptist's zeal, maybe, or it could just mean as a very, very bright, shining light. In other words, John's testimony, even though human, was a hugely powerful testimony. And it was such a powerful testimony that for a time you were willing to enjoy his light. Now, we have a problem here. How did the Pharisees enjoy John the Baptist telling them they were about to get chopped down like an axe laid to the root of the tree? <laughs> well, let's let John Gill give the answer here. Quote, when John first appeared among them, they were fond and even proud of him. They gloried in him that a man of such uncommon endowments and of such exemplary holiness was raised up among them and hoped that he was the Messiah, or Elias, that was to come before him and please themselves that times of great outward honor and prosperity were hastening, wherefore they flocked about him, and many of the Pharisees and Sadducees attended his ministry and would have been baptized by him. So yeah, they were excited when they thought John the Baptist was that glorious political Messiah who was going to deliver them from the Romans. They were very happy that for a time they were willing to enjoy John the Baptist's light, as Jesus said. And of course the implication is after a while you turned on him, you turned against him, just like you're turning against me. Now, when Jesus said, I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, one of those works was the healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, which the Pharisees had just seen, and as was recorded in the first part of chapter 5. We go now to verses 37 and 38. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. Now, Jesus has already mentioned the Father's miracles testifying about Jesus. Now, he's going to talk about the Father testifying about him through the scriptures. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. Verse 37, you have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Now again, it's a little bit hard to see what Jesus is getting at here. So let's break it down. First of all, how has the Father who has sent Jesus, how has the Father testified about Jesus? This is probably, it doesn't explicitly say, but it's probably a reference to God's voice in the scriptures. This is NIV Study Bible's view, Adam Clark's view, Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view, and John Calvin's view. That's my view, too, because I think that's perfectly reasonable. So, God the Father has testified about Jesus, and you don't 
listen to him. In fact, later on in this passage, he's going to talk about how you search the scriptures and yet you don't you don't see me in the scriptures. We'll talk about that in a little bit, in just a little bit. Now, it might not be the testifi testifying about Jesus might not be God's voice in the scriptures. There's two other options. One, it could have been the audible, articulate voice from heaven when God the Father testified about Jesus at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3:17. And there came a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Well, it could be that. They didn't believe that either. Or it could be just a repeat of the miracles. The father has testified about Jesus through the miracles that the father did through the son. It, or it could be all three of those. Scripture, audible voice, miracles. Either way, lots of testimony about Jesus and you dumb Pharisees you spiritually obtuse and blind Pharisees didn't believe all this testimony now let's look at verse 38 you don't have his word living in you what word is that well whenever you see the word word you always have the problem of of interpreting from the context is this the written word or is it the living word Jesus well we have these two options here the first option is 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 Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you don't have his written word living in you, the scriptures. John Gill takes that view, and Adam Clark takes that view, that that's what Jesus is talking about, the scriptures. And so if that's true, that means that Jesus is saying, look, if you would believe the scriptures, you'll believe in me. You don't have the scriptures living in you, because if you did have the scriptures living in you, you would believe the one whom he sent. And he shortens that up by saying, you don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one he sent. If you did have the word believing in you, you would believe the one that the Father sent. I think that's the easiest way to interpret verse 38. Could be Jesus himself. You don't have Jesus living in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Well, that's, John Gill denies that, and I think that denial is correct because I don't see how it could be correct because Jesus wasn't living in anybody yet, including his disciples. This is pre-Pentecost. So it's not so hard to interpret from the context here that this is the written word. If you had the written word living in you, you would believe. Now, point, note that. That's a very important point to make. The Old Testament scriptures testified about Jesus. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures here in a minute to show that. And I'm not, I'm not going to give you all of them. There's so many. But the Old Testament scriptures refer to Jesus. Well, think about it just off the top of my head. Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin birth. How about Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem? Micah 5. How about the suffering servant passages in Isaiah 50? In the 50s in Isaiah, I can't remember which chapter it was exactly. Uh, and we could go, well, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, that hadn't happened yet. Uh, so the Pharisees couldn't couldn't use that scripture to, to point to Jesus. But uh, eventually, after Jesus' ministry is over, it's, very, it's really easy to see how the Old Testament has all kinds of prophecies that point to Jesus. It's really ironic. Jesus tells the Pharisees, Look, you can't hear God's voice, you can't see his form. But there Jesus was standing right in front of them, speaking God's voice and having of a form. A form which, if they looked at it, would, even though it was human, it was God in human form. And so it gave form to God if you would. It gave voice to God. It gave form to God. And that's what Jesus does. We can't see God, and so God's kind of abstract. The idea of God's abstract, but Jesus is not abstract. We can relate to a human being who suffered as we suffered and who lived a life, a human life, as we live our human lives, right there in front of them, and they didn't believe. They were hard-hearted folks, extremely hard-hearted. 
Verses 39 and 40 of John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet they testify about me, and you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. In other words, you got the Bible, you study it constantly. The NIV study Bible says the Jewish leaders studied the scripture in minute detail. They reverenced every letter. The NIV study Bible quotes Matthew 5, 18, 19. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all have accomplished. Jesus is referring to the Pharisees' want of looking at every little stroke, every little jot, every little tittle, every little slash, every little period of the Scripture. They saw the form of the Scripture. They didn't see the Jesus who was revealed in the Scriptures. And by the way, that's a good application point for Christians today. There's two extremes that you can get into. Here's extreme number one. Ignore the scriptures. Of course, that's the big problem that most Christians have today. Look at these pew polls that show the average Christian spends about 25 seconds a day in the Bible. or They only read the Bible once a week, and it's nonsense. Extreme number two is you read the Bible, and you can quote all kind of theologians and all kind of websites and everything, and you don't know nothing about Jesus. You don't pray to him. You don't ask him to help you through the trials of this life. You don't help him to minister to others in the name of Jesus. You don't have a relationship with him. But by golly, you can you can quote the the Hiles Kashitki and the Religion Kashitki and all the Bull Kashitki. You can. Two extremes. We need to avoid them both. Look at the scriptures and then see Jesus in the scriptures. Don't just say, oh, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. You know, the pietist mystic attitude where... It's just Jesus, and then you don't look to the scriptures that, that reveal Jesus. You can't just get Jesus without the scriptures. Of course, what you're doing is you're building up an image of Jesus in your mind and claiming that you know Jesus because of what you put in your mind yourself. can't do that. You have to look at the scriptures because the scriptures testify about Jesus, he says here in verse 39. Verse 40, you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. If we were willing to come to Jesus, we would live. We would be born again from our sins and our death and our transgressions and the judgment that's on every one of us because we're born into this world as sinners. If you were willing to come to Jesus, you would have life. Notice that Jesus calls the Scriptures the Scriptures. What is a Scripture? A Scripture is a holy document which is inerrant and contains the Word of God and is the Word of God and is inspired as the Word of God. I'm using all the words to get around the liberal nonsense about how the Bible's inspired, but it's got errors in it. Nonsense. It's the inerrant Word of God. Jesus never complained about the Pharisees' doctrine of the Scriptures. He complained about everything else they did, but not about their view of the Scriptures. He doesn't tear down the Scriptures here. He's tearing down the idea of looking at the Scriptures and letting the Scriptures become a dead letter and not and letting the Scriptures not reveal the Son of God in those Scriptures. John chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. Jesus says this, I do not accept glory from men, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. And once again, this is a little bit cryptic, so let's break this down. What does Jesus mean when he says, I do not accept glory from men? Well, here's some options. First, of all, first option, Jesus is saying, look, I'm not trying to start a political movement by being a big shot Messiah. I know you Pharisees are constantly worried about the Romans, who are constantly worried about us starting revolutions here in Israel, but I'm not trying to do that, so don't worry about it. Okay, that's option number one. Option number two, he's saying, when he says, I do not accept glory for men, what he's saying is, I don't accept man's testimony. I don't need man's testimony to say that I'm the Messiah. 
John 5:34, he says, I don't receive man's testimony. Now, of course, he did receive the testimony of men because he mentions John the Baptist's testimony, but then, but he, what he's further saying is, hey, I got the testimony from John the Baptist, but I don't really need it. I don't need to get glory from it. I think that's a stretch, really, but that's another option. Third option is John Gill's option. He's saying, I am not trying to get praise by claiming equality with God. When Jesus says, I do not accept glory from men, he said, look, I'm not trying to get, be a big shot here by claiming equality with God. I'm just stating a fact. I am I am God, but I'm not trying to get praise from it. I'm not trying to get earthly praise about the fact that I'm God. We have a further problem. What's the connection between verse 41 and 42? I do not accept glory from men, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. What in the world is the connection? What's the but there for? All right, well, so here's... I'm going to give you option number one and option number two, and they're closely related. They're not, there's not much difference. So here's option number one. The Pharisees are saying that Jesus is arrogating to himself man's glory. So in verse 41, Jesus is denying that. He says, look, I don't accept glory from men, despite the fact that you say that I am. And then, ver and then the next verse, 42, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. What Jesus is, what the Pharisees are saying is, we are defending God's honor. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. But I know you. You have no love for God within you. You say you're defending God's honor, but you, you don't. But you're not. So let's let's repeat that again. John 4, verse 41, Jesus is saying, I don't accept glory from men, but even though you say that I'm trying to accept glory from men. And on the other hand, verse 42, when you claim that you are defending God's honor, you don't love God. You don't have any love for God within you. So I don't accept glory from men, but I do love God. Verse 41, but for, verse 42, you do accept glory from God from men, but you don't have any love for God within you. Big contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. So the Pharisees say they're defending God's honor against Jesus because they love God. And Jesus says they're wrong on both counts. Verse 41, he says, I'm not trying to get glory by claiming equality with God. So you're wrong about that, Pharisees. And verse 42, I also know that you're not that you're not defending God's honor because of your love of God. You don't have any love of God within you. That's a little bit uh, enigmatic, but I think that's how we can explain it. Maybe in a little bit easier way to explain it is this. Jesus is, contra is contrasting his own goals with that of the Pharisees. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from men. My aim is not to get glory. Verse 42, but your aim is to get human applause, and by trying to get human glory and human applause, that shows that you have no love for God within you. That, of course, leaves out, that, that implies a lot that you have to read between the lines. But at any rate, I think we can summarize these two verses by saying this. Jesus was humble and yet exalted in his status, but humble about it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, thought they were exalted in their status, and they were absolutely arrogant about it. We go now to verse, verses 43 and 44. Jesus continues, I have come in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe? While accepting glory from one another, you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. If someone else comes in your own name, you will accept him. Well, who would the Pharisees accept if someone else came? Well, it could be that this is a reference to the Pharisees who emphasize self-seeking and human praise. So if somebody else comes and says, Ooh, I'm a big shot. I, I, I have a chief place in the synagogue. I sit at the 
up at the most honored place at the feast, and I walk around in the public, and I love everybody calling me Rabbi, Rabbi. Wow, you'll accept somebody like that who's very arrogant, but you come, but who, but who is whose status is really not all that great? He just thinks he is. He's arrogant. But you don't, you accept them, but you won't accept me, and I come from God the Father. <laughs> my my situation is much better than these arrogant people that you accept. On the other hand, it could be, as according to John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, that when Jesus says, if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him, that Jesus is referring to all the false messiahs that have popped up. There's a problem with that. The Jewish leaders didn't accept false messiahs either. John Gill tries to answer that by saying, well, no, they didn't, but the people did. But Jesus is not speaking to the people. He's speaking to the Pharisees. So I don't think that that's going to fly. I don't think that's what it means. I think he's talking about arrogant people who come. That's who the Pharisees accept, not false messiahs. Verse 44, how can you believe while accepting glory from one another? You don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. If you don't seek glory from, the other, from God, you're not going to believe. If you want to accept glory from one another, well, you're not going to believe in God. It's self-contradictory. It's contradictory. You either love God or you love man. The arrogance of man. Accepting glory from one another is well known that the rabbis, when they taught, they quoted authority after authority after authority until they're stacked so high in the Talmud, the Mishnah, and all, oh my gosh, you can't wade through all that stuff. So they'll quote human authority, rabbinic authority, but they won't accept the Son of God who's standing right in front of them. Let's go now to John 5, verses 45 through 47, and we'll finish up this chapter. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, Jesus continues. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now Moses prided themselves on their attachment, excuse me, the Jews prided themselves on their attachment to Moses. So this was a, a curveball. Jesus all of a sudden says, hey, you don't even listen to your hero, Moses. You've set your hope on him. You don't even listen to him. Why? Because if you read Moses' words, you would see that he testified about Jesus. He prophesied about Jesus. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he, Moses, wrote about me, Jesus. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? All right, let's look at some scriptures where Moses pointed to Christ that the Pharisees didn't pay any attention to. The obvious ones. Let me start with the most obvious ones first. Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. So there's the prophecy of the Messiah right there. This, was, this prophecy, Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, was quoted by Peter in his Pentecostal sermon in Acts 3, 22 and also by Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts 7. Acts 3.22, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren, as you must listen to him. And everything he will say to you, that's Moses, that, that's uh, Peter, Pentecostal sermon. Stephen, Acts 7.37, as, as he was being stoned by the same Pharisees, or the, the same group of people. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. So Moses clearly talked about Jesus and the Pharisees didn't listen. Now, the NIV Study Bible makes the point that all New Testament writers stressed or assumed that the Old Testament points to Christ. And if you study the Old Testament, I'll tell you, you can't go wrong if you just have that as your guiding principle, as your guiding hermeneutical principle, 
The Old Testament points to Jesus, not to some millennium in the future with the nuclear helicopter, the nuclear bombs and the black helicopters, but it points to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets point to Jesus. Jesus constantly took his life and pointed, pointed people back to the scriptures to explain his life. How about on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, Luke 24, 25 through 27. He said to them, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for, th for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So Jesus clearly says that Moses predicted Jesus' coming. He told that to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And I believe this is when he's speaking to his disciples on Resurrection Sunday night. Then he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So Jesus told his disciples, hey, Moses talked about me. He also told the Pharisees, Moses talked about me, and you won't believe. Let's look at some other places where Moses talked about Jesus. Genesis 49:10. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose might it is, whose right it is, comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. That's obviously referring to Jesus, the scepter prophecy. Moses wrote Genesis 49:10. Moses wrote Exodus 12:21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, "Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal." Well, who's the Passover lamb? That's an easy one. That's Jesus. Leviticus 16:5. He, the priest, is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Well, who is the perfect sin offering? Who is the burnt offering? Read the book of Hebrews. Jesus. Moses talked about Jesus. Numbers 24:17. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. That's talking about Jesus, the star, the scepter. Moses wrote Numbers 24:17. So, you see, Jesus was the end of the law of Moses, as John Gill points out in Matthew 5:17 and 18. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I sure, but to fulfill. He's fulfilling. Well, here it says the law. That's Moses wrote the law, so he came to fulfill the law and the prophets too, of course. But he came to fulfill the law. So all of Moses points to Jesus, and Jesus Himself says that all of Moses points to Jesus. In three times here, to the Pharisees, to the two disciples on the road to Damascus, and to His own disciples on Resurrection Sunday night. So I emphasize all that to show you that the Old Testament is important. I'm a New Covenant theology guy. I don't believe we're under the law of Moses, but I'm telling you, when you want to look for the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, who is the fulfillment and the culmination of it all. It's fun to look back and see that, yeah, the Old Testament law pointed to Jesus. We don't, just because we are now under the law of Christ in the New Covenant doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament and say it has no use for us anymore. Those prophecies, prophecies and types are very, very valuable for us in the New Covenant era. Now, when Jesus finishes bashing the Pharisees and pointing out all the witnesses that he is the Son of God. Remember those witnesses? The witness of John the Baptist in verse 33, the witnesses of the witness of the works of Jesus in verse 36, witness number two, witness number three, the witness of God the Father in verse 37, witness number four, the scriptures in verse 39, and now the witness of Moses in verse 46, and then he identifies himself with, G with God the Father. Jesus does that. 
God the Father's works, God the Father's resurrections, God the Father's judgment, God the Father's words, God the Father's will. He identifies himself with all that. He has more or less worked the Pharisees over pretty good. They turned around and walked away without another word. At least Jesus doesn't record. John doesn't record anything. Adam Clark says the Pharisees walked off without answering Jesus because Jesus had completely confounded them. And I think Clark speculates quite accurately there. They'd had it with Jesus. They couldn't deal with him. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished chapter 5. Now, in our next audio, we are going to skip a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff in the Galilean ministry. And we're going to pick up his Galilean ministry with the feeding of the 5,000. That is what, the one miracle that's in all four Gospels, the three synoptics, and also John. So we'll do that next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.